From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Martin Short. You might know him from his comedic roles on SCTV, Saturday Night Live, Three Amigos, Father of the Bride, I Could Keep Going, but this year he's nominated for an Emmy Award for his guest appearance on The Morning Show, playing disgraced film director Dick Lundy. You know, you could play Dick Lundy like a jerk, or you could play him charming. And uh, I think the charming guys are sometimes much more lethal because you, you, you assume something that isn't accurate. So playing a couple of layers like that make it a more interesting thing to play. Martin talks more about the role and how he and longtime pals like Steve Martin have been connecting during the pandemic. Plus, he takes us down memory lane and reminisces about some of the characters he portrayed early in his acting career. Let's get to it. Marty, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. It does feel weird calling you that. I don't feel like I'm worthy of calling you Marty. How about Sir Marty? (laughs) Sir Marty feels more right. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Have you sort of developed a routine to help each day feel like a day? Yes. And I create little goals that at one point after a cocktail, I'll say, who cares about that goal? You just made it up. So um, I view it as a combination of, uh, it's kind of like I'm Michael Cohen. I'm on house arrest. I daren't step out. Talk to me about the routine. What are some of the goals that you set for yourself? Well, you know, I'm kind of an organized little thing anyway. So I do, you know, I'll do the elliptical every day. I'll swim every day. I'll um, tackle a new closet. You know, I have three kids who live in L.A., so I go and spend a couple days with each one, and they haven't left anywhere. So my world is not just this house. You know, there, there was an incident... I don't know, a month ago where a friend wasn't sure if they had COVID and I'd been with that friend, you know, social distanced and masks and all that. But I thought to myself, oh my God, if I get COVID, I don't know whether I'll be more upset having COVID or having let my guard down to get COVID. I don't think I'm alone in those thoughts. Yeah. Everything you think about a lot more every time you step out of the house You have to. I mean, it's just what it is, you know? Yeah. Have there been many Zoom calls between you and Steve Martin during this time? Steve and I talk all the time. I've had lots of great Zoom cocktail parties with a lot of great, interesting people. And that's fantastic. And, you know, what what have we gained from this? I didn't know about Zoom. (laughs) But now uh, Zoom is my best friend. Are you longing to be back on stage performing in front of people? You know, everyone's asked me that. Oh, you must be going insane because of your needs. But the reality is, I'm kind of motivated by the day. So if I know I'm going to perform that night at, you know, the Beacon Theater in New York, my day is a different ramp because you're ramping up to that evening performance or SNL or anything. Then if you were taking a couple of months off and going to your cottage in Canada. But during those hiatuses, I don't sit back and say, I need to perform tonight. You know, I don't have that. (laughs) That's probably a good thing then. I think so. Yeah. Well, you know, before many of the interviews I do, I try to think back of 
my first introduction to the person I'm speaking with? What was the first thing that I saw them in? And for you, initially, I thought it was Father the Bride. But then I remembered in the third grade, our teacher showed us Johnny Appleseed. (laughs) Molly Ringwald, yes. Molly Ringwald, Carl Reiner. Tell me what you remember about that. Oh, okay. I remember that we shot it in late December, like approaching Christmas of 1984. I was on SNL at the time as a cast member. So was Christopher. Uh, But he was doing this over the Christmas break. I remember my wife was mad at me for accepting any work. We should be just going to Toronto with with our baby. But I said it as, as, and, and it was just so much fun to do, you know. But it was, uh, I remember shooting it. We shot it in Los Angeles. It was about five days, uh, six days, something like that. Yeah, I didn't realize like how many people participated in these tellings of the legends and tall tales. Like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was in one of them. And it was so fascinating. I wish I could see it on YouTube, but I, I only saw a trailer of it. I think if you go to the Google machine. Yeah. <laughs> Enter uh, Tall Tales, you could get the whole series. Yeah, I need to. Well, I want to congratulate you on your Emmy nomination. You were recognized for your guest appearance on The Morning Show. Is it hard to be enthusiastic when you're nominated for playing a creep? No, 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 no. Probably the opposite, you know. I think it's great. You know, there's so much traditional typecasting in Hollywood. There's a Stephen Sondheim Lyric, all they ever like is repetition. All they ever want is what they know. And so if you can break the mold a little bit and play against type, first of all, you applaud anyone who has that instinct to say that could be an interesting choice from the production standpoint. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, you know, if I'm playing a lovable clown and I get nominated, that's that's... Fantastic. But if you're playing against type and you still get nominated, that feels even a little more satisfying. How did this part sort of come your way? Because I know I've talked to showrunners in the past who said, you know, as they were crafting stories sort of inspired by the Me Too movement, it was hard to get men willing to play those types of characters so soon into the discussion about what was going on. So I wonder for you, like, how was it sort of brought to your attention? What did you think about the idea of playing a character like this? It was just, you know, it's like show business. Someone contacts your agent and says, here's a part that we'd love them to do. And I read it and I say, sure. So that part is kind of traditional. I always think that most people that go through life have a public persona, but that there's nine layers below them. That's why... You know, you could play Dick Lundy like a jerk, or you could play him charming. And uh, I think the charming guys are sometimes much more lethal because mm-hmm. you 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 assume something that isn't accurate. So playing a couple of layers like that make it a more interesting thing to play. Yeah. Well, for those that don't know, in the morning show, you appeared as Dick Lundy, as you mentioned, who's a director friend of disgraced TV anchor Mitch Kessler, who's played by Steve Carell. And Dick has also been affected by the Me Too movement. It's sort of safe to say in the scene um, 
that he shares with Mitch. They're sort of commiserating about the discussions and the, the sort of moment that's happening. Um, and you can see that Mitch is sort of taken aback by some of the things that Dick is saying uh, about consent and the statute of limitations. And Mitch sort of views his behavior as different than Dick's. And Dick sort of sets him straight of like, what you did is no better than what I did. We're in the same camp here. It opens up an, an important dialogue. And I wondered what your feelings were about that scene. And what did that discussion get you thinking about? Well, I mean, I think it's not even about just the Me Too. It's, it's you know, people that, people hate to acknowledge that they were ever wrong. There are a lot of people that voted for Donald Trump that regret it, but they won't publicly say it because they feel silly about it. They feel like, they, oh, I should have known better. Well, maybe I'll just pretend publicly anyway that I still support him. And I think that people hate to be told they were wrong. Either you grow from an experience like that as a human being and you evolve to the next level of a human being, or you just say, I'm a victim, they've destroyed my career, they've canceled me, and it's undeserved, and you weren't there, and she was willing to, and she's changed. You know, people will um, delude themselves into believing that their choices were pristine. And, and it's almost like Nicholson and the Tom Cruise movie, you can't handle the truth. A lot of people can't handle the truth. Mm-hmm. Have you found yourself in recent years having maybe not that kind of conversation with male peers, but in light of the movement, have you found yourself having these conversations in private about what it's made you think about or how it's given you perspective of should I have acted differently when someone's told me about something? Like, could I have been a better ally? Like, I have to be honest. I had a very strong wife. And I was maintaining that I married a better looking woman than I am a man. And when you do that, that woman is looking for an intellectual equal. So I had an intellectual equal. And our friends were intellectual equals. And not just intellectually in a reading Chaucer way, but certainly having evolved in what was, as my father used to say, what is the decent way to behave in life? So I can't honestly say that I can go back and say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And I can't honestly say that my, I know friends, close friends, who have those regrets either. And maybe people look for similar elements in their friendship uh, as far as moral evolution. But when I think of all my close friends, Steve Martin and Tom Hanks and Walter Parks and Eugene Levy, these are all impeccably moral people. So I, I, I can't honestly say I knew who Dick Lundy was, that I had a Dick Lundy in my life. But I certainly understand, even beyond me too, this need to pretend that you've done nothing wrong because if you acknowledge the truth, you'll implode. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why that interaction works so well is you and Steve are two actors known for being nice and likable. That was the smart thing of casting it that way. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that, again, if you play either of those characters in an unlikable swagger, then right away you go, ooh. What's, I think, more intriguing for an audience is to be, what draws them into a scene is, wait a second, I thought I understood who this guy was, but now I don't. Oh, oh, maybe he is a victim. Ooh, he isn't a victim. It makes it a well-written mm-hmm. scene. Well, there's also this discussion of wanting to keep one's legacy intact and, like, the fear of what something like this will do to that legacy. And for you, like, at this stage in your career, how much do you think about what your legacy is or what you hope you'll be remembered for? You you know, uh, you think of your legacy more in terms of your children living with your legacy because you're dead. But I would like to think... It went beyond show business. It went as what kind of person I was. And hopefully it would be a positive review. I would think so. (laughs) Dick also performs at Mitch's splashy birthday celebration at the morning show set. Um, What was that day on set like? Well, it was hilarious because it was my birthday. So what are the odds of that? Mm -hmm. So it was just funny to be doing a dance number. You come out of a birthday cake. On your birthday, but it was fun. It was fun. That that listen, you know, Steve Carell is an hilarious, lovely, brilliant guy. So the hang in between takes is what's fun. Had you met him before? Yes. Uh-huh. He's a an alumni of Second City. So we oh. all kind of know each other. This episode is brought to you by Watchmen on HBO. Set in an alternate history where masked vigilantes are treated as outlaws, Watchmen embraces the world of the original, groundbreaking graphic novel of the same name while breaking new ground on its own. Starring an ensemble cast led by Regina King and Jeremy Irons, NPR calls the limited series a masterpiece. Emmy eligible for outstanding limited series and all other categories. view on um, being able to work in singing into your work every now and then? I mean, I know you graduated with a degree in social work, right? So when did that path sort of change? I, I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and I only watched American television. I didn't watch any Canadian. And we got all our stations through Buffalo. And but because of the United States, none of it seemed real. None of it seemed obtainable. Like, if you grow up in Manhattan and you watch the Tony Awards, you could say, hey, I'm an actor, maybe someday, and someday I could go down the street. Well, when you look at things happening in the United States and you live in a Hamilton, you go, that could might as well be take place on Neptune. So even though I was in my attic pretending to have television shows when I was 15 and recording albums and held this whole fantasy and I had a mic and recorders and a laugh track and... Uh, even a a gooseneck lamp because I knew I needed lighting even then. I'm 15 and, 
you would think, well, then I guess he wants to be an actor. But it was not a realistic idea. So I went into medicine, pre-meds, switched after two years and went into social work because I was involved in social services and taking out Big Brother and all that stuff. But it gave me time to do this other thing, which was to be in every musical and play that the university offered. And so the end of four years, it was to me, it was kind of like a perfect university experience. I started off being a doctor, switched to social worker and left an actor. So when I left university after four years, I gave myself one year to see if I could make a living because I wanted to be able to look in the mirror at 50 and say, maybe you should have tried being an actor. Oh, that's right. You did. And you didn't work for a year. Okay. But then I kept working. So I kept renewing my contract with myself. Wow. What were some of those shows that you were watching as a kid that felt out of reach? Well, I mean, anything from Johnny Carson to Ed Sullivan and showing all these acts to to great variety sketch shows, Carol Burnett, seemed what fun, wouldn't it be great? But that's not going to happen. Well, and the, and the first professional gig you got was the legendary Toronto production of Godspell, right? Correct. I mean, that had Eugene Levy, Victor Garber, uh, Gilda Radner, Andrea Martin, Paul Schaefer. What did you feel in those rehearsals, like being able to improvise and then that first performance together? Well, I mean, it, it isn't, you're not doing it saying, my God, I'm in a legendary mm-hmm. production. You know, you're just happy you're not in school anymore. You're happy that you don't have any homework. So I remember it just being exciting. I mean, that edition was out of American Idol because there were like, I don't know, 70 callbacks that day. And the whole rest of Masonic Temple in Toronto was big, big, big building, surrounded by supporters and well-wishers for each person with a callback. And as the day went, they kept dwindling it down, 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 down to the finally they got 10. And um, it was astounding. Remember Eugene Levy and I are friends and we were talking about the other day how we went up to a payphone and we were taking turns phoning people to tell them we'd gotten it, you know. Um, and it was a big production and it was a great show and it was a hip show. And no, it was, it's one of the happiest experiences for all of us, mainly because we weren't in school anymore. I have a lot of friends that have either been in productions of it in high school or college or even community theater. And it's so interesting, like how that show in particular, they light up when they talk about being in it and how how vivid their memories are of it. And I wonder if it's like that for you. Does it still feel like it just happened? Like Absolutely. Paul Schaefer and I talk about it all the time. And that group is all very close. You know, Victor Garber and I talk once a week. Eugene Levy lives two blocks away. Andrea Martin is the aunt to my children. You know, so it, it was... Yeah, it was a great experience. We all loved it. And it was a great show because it wanted people to be talented, but not that uh, polished. They wanted, and and there were parables. It's based on the book of St. Matthew. There are parables throughout it. But those presentations are created by the cast themselves. So as funny as the cast was, the show was funny. So if you had Gildy and Eugene and Marty doing a scene, it, it, it tended to be funny. So you set that deadline for yourself and obviously made it with this production. When did you feel, though, that you could make it as a working actor? Well, it went from year to year. You know, I'd renew my contract. Now I was 23. 
So I was still not too old to go back to school. And then now I was 24. And now I was 25. And at a certain point, you go, I guess this is it. What prompted me a lot was the realization of survival. In other words, I didn't want to be an unemployed actor who hadn't worked for three years. I would have said, very good then. I gave it a shot. Um, but what I found throughout the 70s is each year I was making, at the end of the year, by December 31st, I'd made more money than I had the year before. So that was an indication. And even the first time, I don't know, I'm now 27 and I go through a period of not working for a couple of months and convinced, oh, it's over. And they're on to me and all that stuff. Then by the end of the year, you say, gee, I still made, even though I didn't work for those months, I still made more money this year. Gee, I'm not going to worry about those unemployed months anymore. I'm going to, you know, learn a language or do something because I can't get those months back. And I, I was preoccupied with my own doom. I won't let that happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When did you feel like, oh, I've made it big? Was it like appearing on Taxi or? You really don't guest on Taxi and say, I've made it. <laughs> you know, my joke was always that on, on my gravestone would be one word, almost, you know. So I don't think you ever sit back and say, I made it. You don't do that. Well, something I don't think is any secret anymore that you're sort of known for is you're a great talk show guest. I've read that you, you know, compile like 17 page like notes of what you're prepared to talk about or what you think might be good to discuss And I know, you know, we recently lost one of the great talk show hosts, which was Regis Philbin. And I just wonder, like, if you have any memories that stand out from the times that you've uh, been a guest on his show. Oh, I love Regis. Absolutely. I I did his show endlessly. I filled in for Regis different times with Kathy Lee. I remember one time he was doing uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It was Celebrity Millionaire. And about, you know, you start off with, it's a whole day of shooting, basically, as they whittle it down. I guess it was probably shown over a week. And um, Chevy was there, Ben Stiller was there, I remember, and we were all there. And then about halfway through the day, day Regis, we were in New York, and Regis came over and said, uh, do you want to have, you and Nancy have dinner with Joy and me tonight? And I said, sure. But... At the end of the day, I was finding my turn, and I bombed. I, you know, I was up to like $250,000, and I could, there was a question about what was written in the first person, and was it uh, Great Gatsby, was it this, was it that? And I had two options of phone a friend. One was the, it was for Loyola High School, in Los Angeles, and one person was the head of literature for Loyola, and the other was Steve Martin. And I chose to go with show business, and I picked Steve. He gave me the wrong answer, and the money went right down to 25000 And I was so depressed that I went back to the hotel and at one point went to the bottom of the bed under the cover saying, I just can't believe that my stupidity cost a quarter million dollars for Loyola High School. But then we still had to have dinner with Regis. And joy that night. And he made me feel great. What was it like having dinner with Regis? It's exactly what you'd think. He was the same guy. Glint in the eye and the Irish eye. Funny, loose, and loved to laugh. The energy. Like, no one had energy like him. 
and real charm. And when he asked you a question just at dinner, he really wanted to know the answer. He was fascinated by people. Mm-hmm. How has it been sort of doing the talk show circuit in the time of Corona? I know you've appeared, you know, with Conan and Seth this way over Zoom. Is it a weird thing to try to connect in the same way? Have you found a way to sort of make it work doing it online? I do think that, you know, everything is a problem and everything is solvable. Like I was so impressed by SNL. They did three at-home shows. And the first one was great, you know, great accomplishment given the restrictions. Then they had a couple of weeks off. The second one was through the roof. They had learned so much. They had learned to actually utilize how could the Zoom approach to show business be better. So I think that as someone who, you know, works on stage and works in front of the camera and works with no video, just doing an animated movie, you know, Frank and Weenie and things like that, you learn that each new situation is its unique situation and you get used to it. After um, being with Jimmy, and Jimmy and I just talked, and they edited it down. It was funny just, like, talking to Jimmy. Well, I have to ask, just because we've seen this viral video going around Twitter of Trump being interviewed on Axios's HBO series by Jonathan Swan. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. But um, I've heard this statement before, but it was repeated recently in light of this interview of, like, how some people view Trump as a version of Nathan Thurm or like how Nathan could have been a part of this administration. And I just wonder, like, what are your thoughts on that? This is a character for those that don't know that you created. Purely created on SNL. Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer and Billy Crystal and I were writing a piece together, satirizing 60 Minutes. And I was going to play the defensive lawyer who represents always the bad guy in those pieces. And uh, we called him Nathan Thurm. I'd once seen Richard Nixon as president look into the camera and say, close up like this and saying, you know, I am not a crook. But he had sweat on the top of his lip and you knew, well, he's lying. Look at that. That's hilarious. He's saying one thing, but his body's giving up the answer. And so we deliberately put glycerin on top of Nathan Thurn's lip. And so he was a guy that would chain smoke and totally deny what was factual. And then when he was cornered to like a rat, he'd then quickly say, well, I did. So in other words, they'd say, Mr. Thurm, um, were you aware that that was against legal recommendations? I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a lawyer. I would know that. So he's already attacking. And then when he really got cornered, would attack the interviewer. Well, maybe it's because I got confused because you're so boring uh, facially, because you're so bland as a human being. So, so Mr. Thurm, you are saying you were at that meeting? I wasn't at that meeting, but you were at that meeting. I know that. You don't think I know that? I was at that meeting. It is a kind of you know, insanity that you think could never really happen, but it satirizes a type. What the president does is does nothing broader than what I just did. (laughs) Something I want to ask you about is the big show, the Emmy show, and like I think every 
related award show uh, will be done virtually. What do you think of like, is it going to be weird to be doing it this way? Like, I mean, you're a performer, you know what it's like. I mean, Jimmy's going to be, I don't know if he'll be like on a stage alone doing it from his home, but like, what do you expect from that night? And I mean, I'm sure you know that Jimmy can deliver, but what do you think the night will feel like? Well, again, with like using SNL as the example, I would never have thought with those at-home shows that they could reach the quality of writing and craftsmanship that they did. So, uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel's a huge talent and he will do a great show. And I think that as far as everyone else watching it, we're all in the same predicament. This is our new normalcy. So new normalcy takes over quickly. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if you have some updates on some projects that I know were in the works pre-COVID, one of them being the true crime series you and Steve are doing for Hulu. Uh, Yes, it's called Only Murders in the Building, and we'll shoot that in New York at this point in the fall. Wow. Okay. Any updates on Father of the Bride 3? No. (laughs) Wasn't sure. There's been talk. I didn't know if he knew anything. Uh, Father of the Bride 3. You mean a feature movie? No, they're they're going without (laughs) Frank on that one, I guess. They could never. Well, before I let you go, I mean, has there been some shows you've watched in quarantine that you recommend our listeners give a try? I had never seen Downton Abbey. I went through six episodes. I had never seen Ozark, which is spectacular. I had never seen... Oh, listen, I mean, there's an old saint elsewhere I haven't seen. I don't know. And then, then, and then movies, you know, you go through, I'll, I'll go to a, the best movies of the 70s and see if I haven't seen one on everyone's list, and then I'll see it. That's a good way to go. I mean, there's still plenty of time to watch a lot of things. We're in this for a while. So hope the next thing you watch is worth your time. Well, it's not always worth my time, but, you know, I'm usually double tasking. I'm doing some project. I'm zzz you know, photocopying something and putting in my computer and looking, you know. (laughs) Well, thank you for spending uh, this morning with us and congratulations. Best of luck. Thank you very much. That's it for the 35th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson and our executive producer is Abby Fedra-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Rami Youssef. His show, Rami, on Hulu was nominated for three Emmy Awards, making history as the first Muslim American sitcom to receive an Emmy nomination. You know, I'm watching like a late night clip in Egypt and they're like, Omar Sharif, Mo Salah, Rami Youssef. That's the kind of thing where I'm just like, what in what? What is happening? This is massively surreal. And I'm hearing from family over there in a way that um, that's the kind of thing that, that, that I can't really fathom. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.